0: I would like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on which this podcast is recorded as the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. And as this podcast is dedicated to the wisdom and knowledge of motherhood, I would like to acknowledge the mothers of this land, the elders, their wisdom, their knowing and my own elders and teachers. Welcome back, Mummers. I have a question for you this week. Why, after decades of social progress, is motherhood still so much harder than it needs to be? This is a question by my guest this week, Eliane Glazer. In her book, Motherhood, A Manifesto, Eliane bravely and beautifully asks questions of why, after all this time, we are still experiencing such isolation, struggle and depletion as mothers. Why, after all these decades of feminism and massive changes in parts of our culture and society, is motherhood still the same? Why is it the way it is right now? As Eliane says in her book, I love my children, they fill me with joy, but I feel guilty when I rebelliously ate runny cheese while pregnant. I felt guilty when I had an epidural for my first baby and I frequently feel guilty when I sneak off to check my emails while my children are at home. Why do we still have a belief around motherhood that it is only up to us Eliane is a writer, radio producer and research fellow at the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. And she brings her insight into motherhood and her own experience in her book. And in this conversation challenges me and I'm sure you as well when you listen to really think about how could we be doing this better, especially after two years of a pandemic. I hope you get a lot out of this interview as much as I did. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much
1: for joining me. We have been trying to talk about your book, your amazing book, and your work in motherhood for many months, but I think today is the day we're meant to have this conversation, so thank you for being here.
2: Oh, it's it's really good to talk to you, Amy.
1: Before we talk about motherhood in 2022... Can you just share with the audience with this amazing community of parents how you came to write that book, your experience of becoming a mother and the questions that you wanted to ask and the answers you wanted to find
2: yes, I, I think I was terrified of becoming a mother I mean I really wanted to a hundred percent, but I was really terrified of losing my identity, my previous identity as a person with a job and with time and with my own thoughts and time to, to think them and time to see my friends and be a kind of be my own person i think i was really terrified that that would all go out the window and i think for reasons that perhaps we'll discuss i don't think it was surprising that that i was terrified because i think we're told by society everything's going to change you know give up your old life and you know, in so many ways, things do change. And it is really hard. But I suppose what I think is that it's way harder than it needs to be. But I was terrified. And I was going through that whole um, tumult of emotions when I was preparing to have kids. And then I had a really terrible birth experience with my, my first child. So 12 years ago now, I was worried about childbirth itself I think I like to be in control which I think is not you know I'm not a control freak I just um the idea of giving up control in this moment of childbirth you know pain and incredible transformation that childbirth is I think I was really particularly scared of that moment and and I think you know I went to antenatal classes where you know the message was give up control, (laughs) you know, give into your animal instincts. And, you know, this really was not what I wanted to hear. Um, And as a professional woman in my 30s, I really didn't want to give up control and go through this sort of terrifying rite of passage. And my birth experience confirmed my worst fears in a way. I came into hospital um, in a lot of pain, I was bleeding and. The midwife at the hospital told me to go home. She said that I wasn't in established labour. Effectively told me that I shouldn't be complaining so much, that I should just go home and wait and just get on with it. (laughs) And so I went home and and things got worse and worse. And I came back and actually I had a a really rare complication, which was really dangerous. And as it turned out, my life and my son's life were in danger. And um, so... I just felt like this really confirmed my worst fears of not being listened to in childbirth, and that's an experience that so many women share. That they ask for pain relief, they ask to stay in the hospital because they're scared it's their first baby, but they're kind of fobbed off. Um, they're told to not complain, or it's implied that they sh- shouldn't complain so much. Um, that they should just get on with it, and um, and then the the first night that i spent with my baby in the hospital this message of don't complain was really reinforced so harshly um if i couldn't even lift up my baby to feed him and when i pressed the button to call for help the implication was that i you know really was being demanding um, and uh that i should just get on with it myself and i just thought i can barely move um and 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 yet you know instead of feeling um indignant or aggrieved or angry about this i remember just thinking okay right so really everything has changed i really can't complain anymore um and actually you know this baby is so much more vulnerable than i am you know he's the priority now it's really time to put my own needs second and even though you know as a good feminist <laughs> I I knew rationally that this was ridiculous and that my needs were also important. Um, I just think there's this incredibly strong message that sort of gets through to all women who have babies that actually you know, it's time to sacrifice their own needs and wants. It's time to put their baby's needs and wants first. And if you complain or you get angry or you think, hang on a minute, I'm really not getting the support that I need that somehow you're being demanding and and then of course the guilt sets in that you're being selfish um and i just the reason i wanted to write this book was that as a you know fairly self aware kind of feminist woman all of these feelings of guilt and self criticism um i was feeling all of them and i and i just felt that there was a great injustice being done and and i and i think you know, in many ways, things really haven't got better for mothers. I think we're more isolated than we ever were. I think we're more guilty than we ever were. I think conditions have got really worse for for mothers. You know, workplaces haven't shifted a, a bit. Attitudes haven't really improved. Still, you know, great expectations of perfectionism around motherhood. And of course, you know as we might discuss all of those things have got way worse during covid as well so i really wanted to write this book to to give mothers you know a sense of of licence to to say hang on things really could be so much better and how come you know even now we're suffering so much even though we love being mothers and we love our children that's never in question why is it so much harder than it needs to be
1: so I feel like I want to answer that question up until 2020 and then ask it again for 2022. So when you were researching that book and asking why after all this time and after all this social progress and after all of the breakthroughs of feminism, why is motherhood still this hard? What, what answers did you find, not in an academic sense, but as a mum, like what would the things that you discovered that changed the way you felt
2: well I just think that it's almost like motherhood is a great exception to feminism that we we kind of accept that we need equality in all these other spheres so why is this great exception when it comes to motherhood and I think there are really interesting reasons for that I think it's almost as if becoming a mother just puts you in a in a tunnel where you just almost can't think clearly anymore. you're isolated from your peers. you can't compare notes. It's not really the done thing to complain. You know, there's a great kind of a stiff up stiff upper lip and a kind of a sense of you know gratitude and um, uh, you know let, let's not complain you know, others have it so much worse than me. at least my baby's fine. After this traumatic birth, oh, I can't complain. I've only got two kids. Other people have three or four, you know. um so And and there's just this sense if you're complaining, it somehow I don't know. It's, it, I remember going to meet my uh, the other mothers from my antenatal class after the birth, and and it's like we had a brief window where we could say, "Oh, actually, things didn't go to plan." But then quite soon, this sense of oh well, you know, buck up. Um, get on with it you know that that sense of it's almost impolite or self-indulgent to complain I think so that was a real block on really on trying to find the ways in which we're all going through the same things and actually we need what we needed was solidarity and so I think that there's that and then I think just the baby you know I think there's this really pervasive sense that the mother and baby you're you're in the zero-sum game so you know what you Uh, lose the baby gains what the baby gains you lose and that very much in pregnancy you know if you have a drink oh well the baby loses you might get some rest and relaxation but the baby will lose out but I think that zero-sum game logic is really pervasive and really wrong and damaging it's really there in work as well Mm. you know the hours that you spend at work the bit that they you know that the baby loses and I think that's so wrong that actually I get so much, my motherhood is is bolstered by having professional identity outside the home. It's almost as if the baby is incredibly vulnerable, um, being that the baby's needs are kind of set against feminism. (laughs) So any feminist gains, well, those will be a loss to the baby.
1: Why is that? <laughs> why? 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 Why has feminism forgotten motherhood so much? Like, I, I don't expect you to have a complete answer here, but it, it blows my mind, like it does for you in the book as I was reading it. And I was like, God, I'm so with you. Why? Why are we so unable to make a change in this area when we've made such changes in everything else?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting if you look back to um a previous generation of um both childcare experts but also psychologists from you know the early 20th century they were really quite tolerant and understanding of um maternal ambivalence you know Donald Winnicott who's one of the leading lights of child psychology he wrote all about how mothers naturally hate their children you know at times because their children deprive them of their pleasures and and their ambitions. Um, And he wrote in this incredibly understanding way, well, of course, a mother is going to have feelings of hatred um, towards her child uh, at certain times. And another um, great book by the psychoanalyst, Rizika Parker, Torn in Two, all about maternal ambivalence, why it's natural to feel ambivalent about being a mother and about all the sacrifices you've made about all the things you can't you can no longer do your freedoms your relationship with your partner your job and yet you know this was a previous generation of experts and writers and analysts and I think that sense of understanding of of mother's predicament has really fallen away And I think now that there's a great atmosphere of intolerance and perfectionism, for example, about anger, you know, which is a subject I really feel strongly about because I felt terrible anger. Um, I mean, sorry, terrible, yeah, terrible anger. You see there it pops out, Um, but terrible guilt about my anger. Uh, You know, when I've lost my temper with the kids, when I had a baby and a toddler at home, my partner was late coming back um my kids even now that they're nearly 10 and 12 when they're being really disobedient um it's late in the evening i lose my temper i feel terribly guilty and beat myself up but you know the the advice on anger now which is issued by like parenting tv programs or experts on the media is it absolute kind of zero tolerance approach it's all about mothers should never express anger you know, count to 10, go, to, go into another room, understand the children's feelings, what are their rights? Well, of course, you know, these are all laudable aims, but they don't really take account of human nature. And of course, mothers are going to be imperfect and mothers are going to snap and shout as I do. Um, and then, you know, it's important everyone learns from from. <laughs> the the experience and it's actually quite good for children too to see their mothers be imperfect and to see those natural reactions being you know see you apologise and to, to be able to kind of um, see that even even adults are are human and um, respond to to pr- provocation but I think that that societal intolerance of ordinary human reality um, you know which you know which sort of came out of a laudable aim you know which was to protect children from harm, you know, which, which was great, but I think it, the pendulum has really str- swung so far the other way. These kind of paternal ass- attitudes in pregnancy, what you're allowed to, to eat and th- food you should avoid, advice on avoiding this and that, and the terrible consequences of, of ignoring that advice or putting your child in nursery in childcare, you know, the terrible consequences of that. And I think that flood of media censoring of of mothers has really weighed against any kind of attempts to put motherhood back into the feminist picture and to and to fight back and I think you know and I think really the secret weapon the really difficult part of it is that because mothers are so isolated in their own homes we feel so guilty and we feel so protective and worried and anxious about our our children our Our babies and then our children, how they they're growing up. That in a way, you know, we become our own worst enemies. We undermine that that fight for equality by that little questioning voice. Oh, maybe we're not doing enough for them. You know, maybe we have damaged them by shouting at them. Um, Maybe I am damaging them by working too much. And I think those questioning voices really undermine this real need for solidarity and real need for really fighting against, you know, the injustice that mothers are bringing up children in circumstances which are absolutely, you know, if you reverse them and replaced fathers with mothers and um, if men were were having to stay at home and kind of bring up children alone and and be isolated in the way that women were, you know, society would be up in arms.
1: I totally agree. And as I listen to you, I actually feel incredibly sad that in a way, I feel like we're doing this to each other now too. When I think about the feminist movement, when I think about how women came together against the patriarchy, against the system and spoke up as one voice, not always, obviously. There was great battles within it. But really the changes we've seen in history came from that unification. And I feel like at the moment in motherhood, we're actually more separated than ever. We judge each other, we put labels on each other, there's different types of parenting, there's different types of sleeping, there's different types of food, there's different types of labels. I feel like we're separating from each other more than ever and that is just heartbreaking.
2: Yeah, I totally agree and I think you know, if you see those sort of social patterns that have emerged over the past few decades, you know, we're so individualised, privatised, isolated in our own homes that those kind of networks supported mothers and brought mothers together in the past have really fallen away both kind of extended family networks but also institutions you know clubs and societies and all of those kind of social um the social fabric really has has um frayed so much and I think that's really isolated mothers and you know, there's very little state responsibility also for
1: mm. you know, it takes the
2: village to raise a child and yet now it's just mothers on their own in their individual homes um which is just I mean absurd really and also I think as you say there's so much division now between mothers and I think that's really been exacerbated by social media which was going to was supposed to be the great way to bring people together and yet as we've seen it's just encouraged division and there's so much sort of competitiveness and judgment on these sort of parenting message boards I know it's a mixed picture there's also lots of um, solidarity on there as well um, and humour and camaraderie but there's also a lot of kind of subtle um sort of shame and and shaming behavior that perhaps you know it's easier to project into other people and judge them than the, look at it really yourself in your own self and i think I think also the parenting wars you know have really contributed to that that um this idea that you know all the um uh, breast versus bottle um work yes. versus stay at home all of those wars yes. have really divided mothers in the in the least helpful way possible.
1: I want to bring uh, up fathers as well, and I want to acknowledge that when I mention this, it's very you know the stereotypical assumption of of these roles. Of course, there are many and very different roles, partners, and uh, situations. But I was in researching, speaking to you. I read in one of the many articles around what's happening with COVID and parenting and motherhood in many different parts of the world one of the the questions that the journalist was contemplating and putting to you was why is it that after all this time father's participation seems to have flatlined? Why is it not only are we in a situation where it's not changing for mothers, but we're also in a situation where, as you beautifully said, father's participation has flatlined, that we don't seem to be making many breakthroughs in that area. And I know that in many situations and individuals it's different, but as a culture and a workplace and a society, it's not changing.
2: No, and you know, I mean, I, you know, it's not that there haven't been haven't been any shifts. There's been slight shifts, but but yeah, I mean, fathers' participation in the home, um, the, the the degree to which they're doing more in the home, that change has basically stalled in the 1980s, and I think. You know, and it's amazing that you hear so many headlines, like, you know, about hands on dads, and, you know, and um the headlines, I think it's because the media, they get so understandably tired of all the, the same, saying the same things over and over again. um You know, it's so unfair, it's so unequal, that it's almost like it's more interesting to have a story about hands on dads, <laughs> which I can understand, but it really skews the picture. And, um, you know, although you might see a few more dads pushing crams around the park, you know, at my kid's school, you go to a parent's uh, evening or a curriculum meeting. It's basically 20 to one, you get 20 mums and one dad. And, and lockdown has really exposed the imbalance in a really stark way, because, um, you know, so many dads, now have had time to to be at home and um working from home and juggling just as their part female partners were uh jobs and, and homeschool and yet even then even when the dads were at home and able to do more they didn't you know and the the lion's share of, of homeschooling and domestic duties fell to to the mother's and I think that it really has been shocking, because then you realise it's not just that they're at work. Um, it's that they just, they're just not doing it, even when they have the chance. And I'm not blaming them. You know, I think there's just a, you know, a set of really deep seated, structural and attitudinal um, divide that's set in. And of course, it's about competence, you know, so that you know, I remember my friend saying even on the first night when she was in hospital, and it was the same with me, you know, her partner came in the next day and already she knew so much more than him about how to change the nappy, how to you know, how to hold the baby. And so you get this competence gap that opens up, you know, widens so much during the first, you know, year of maternity leave. And then the maternal gatekeeper syndrome, is often referred to you know mothers know so much more about how to handle these really tricky everyday situations and so the dads do step back and so you know it's 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 not appropriate to, to blame men but i think there's a huge imbalance a glaring imbalance even within supposedly very liberal and progressive couples that i see around me you know progressive and feminist men <laughs> but when it comes to the home front just they don't step up and it's kind of embarrassing in a way it's shameful but this imbalance is it's kept behind closed doors and I don't know is it perpetuated by I mean I I think I've protected my own sense of dominion over the kids you know because if that's what you spend your time doing you want to be good at it and you want to have some sort of sense of agency and this is the thing that I'm good at and this is my realm and it, I think it becomes a way to punish male partners oh look you know you're so hopeless you can't even you know do this or you can't even dress them properly for a day out in the park it becomes a way to punish them for for your resentment at having to do it all all the time and so I think there's a real really common spiral there
1: Oh, I love your honesty and, you know, almost your brutal insights there. I, I totally agree. We can't say it's just one reason why we are flatlining this. And I think that, um, you know, I've listened to thousands of mums over the last 10 years and there is a lot of resentment and anger and, and that agency they have over the kids is used at times, um, but also at other times it's the only thing that they feel seen for for the last day, 10 days, two years. So yeah. it, it's so complex, isn't it? Yeah. it? It it makes me sit here and think, so is it any wonder we're not making any progress because how do we get ourselves out of this, especially yeah. after two years of a pandemic? Like yeah. what is what is our way out of this, of having mothers, experience this differently mm.
2: and this is why I wrote this book because I just thought if you look to these insights of people in the past who had such different views and so such understanding perspectives um on mother on motherhood and you look to how things were done so differently in the past you know mothers who in a way had a lot more latitude um even in eras that we consider much more repressive like the 19th century or the 1950s have more freedom and latitude than than they do now we look at other countries and see how how differently children are brought up um, and how they turn out fine <laughs> and actually I think you' know, seeing these really liberating past precedents and and examples from from other cultures I think and really you know what I tried to do is kind of make the argument that hang on um it, you know if you look at the science also the evidence really doesn't support The kind of paternalistic and anxiety inducing and kind of punishing attitudes that you see in the media the evidence just isn't there to support it and and so once you see those things I think it's possible to then start to feel um indignant and justified and entitled to to a sense of if not anger then well just to see that there's a great injustice here being done to mothers and to see that it could be could be so much better that transition to motherhood is always going to be momentous but it's made so much harder than it needs to be and I think once women once mothers start to feel you know less guilty once we're able to throw off those feelings of guilt and self-criticism and start to feel entitled to thinking that things could be different then I think that's a really important first step because I think too often we don't we just would Beat ourselves up rather than think that we are entitled to, to having anything for, for ourselves, to having any time to ourselves, or to have any kind of attempt at equality with our partners or ability to have a, you know, to really have a fulfilling job that doesn't make us run the time between home and work and, and feel terrible about being late for everything all the time. I think, so I think it really starts there. And then I think after that, I think the solutions really are about coming together and it's about ways to bring mothers together um and to compare notes and and that's really how you build solidarity and that has to be kind of in the real world and do listening to each other um do podcasts like this um and through you know, you know I wrote the chapter on postnatal depression which is a whole subject in itself but but one of the most potent cures for postnatal depression was was mothers hearing other mothers talk about their own experience and realizing that they weren't alone, that their feelings of of um, ambivalence and inadequacy of failure, <laughs> normal failure, not, you know, not real actual failure, but just normal human imperfection, realizing that those feelings were universal. And that was really the thing that helped most of all. So. And then I think, you know, and then I think, finally, it's about lobbying for structural solutions. So, you know, lobbying politically for finally a better way to combine work with with child with childcare. And I think, you know, initiatives like the four day week, you know, really powerful and and simple. Actually, that if both mothers and fathers were working a four day week, there'd be so much more time in in the week for childcare. Um, and who want you know what so many parents want anyway, men as well as women. So, you know, maybe that's one good thing to come out of the pandemic is these ideas about changing work practices. I think are much more talked about now than they were before. So, yeah, I think structural solutions like that, um, like the four day week, um, you know, I think those simple changes could make a big difference.
1: I hope so. I said just before we started recording that. I have this beautiful community of of parents around the world and, you know, at the start of this year, they're really telling me how depleted they are, that we're, we're here again another year and it's on my shoulders and trying to balance this. And so I wanted to see if we could obviously talk about the amazing research and insights that you've been able to bring, but hopefully end on a little hope that, and I love your solutions you know, first we talk to each other and we share those stories and we gather and we are honest and we listen to each other and say, this is what it's been like for me instead of trying to hide behind this perfection, perfection mask. And we, you know, lobby changes when we can, but to know that, I hope, I hope we're in a point of history that it's going to start turning around. I really do.
2: I really hope so. I think, you know, in a way we're poised between two possible futures, aren't we, now? Because I think COVID has really sent many women back to the 1950s. You know, we all feel like sort of 1950s housewives even more than we did before. Although, interestingly, you know, I feel like COVID... Homeschool—it's been like an extension of all the worst aspects of motherhood. Being stuck in the—it's like, oh well, here we—you know, business as usual. In so many ways, only only way worse because we're having to homeschool as well. But um, you know, so I think there's that's one trajectory is that you know the clock goes back. But I really hope that we go the other way, and that it opens up a conversation about different um, ways of working and and equality between partners and and that we will see, start to see some change.
1: I hope so too. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. It's been oh, activating. You know, <laughs> I could feel that fire in my belly again, and
2: then at the end I was like, yes, yes, <laughs>
1: let's hope that there's change. So thank you so much.
2: Oh, it's been a real pleasure.
0: This interview with Eliane challenged me to really think about how we are approaching motherhood and how much more we still need to change. Sometimes in these conversations it can feel a little depressing, a little frustrating. Are we really still stuck in this place? But I hope you feel at the end of this conversation today that there are ways we can change the conversation around motherhood in the workplace, in our families and in our community. You can grab a copy of Motherhood, A Manifesto by Eliane online or at your local bookstore or library and also go online to read more about her research and insights at eliannglaser.org. And as always, please leave a review of this podcast on your podcast player so that more mamas can find it and share it with your mama friends far and wide. This is how we change the conversation around motherhood. Thank you for being a part of this conversation, Mama. We change the way mothers are valued and seen in our society and our world by bringing these conversations to light and spreading the whispers of matrescence. And so I ask you to be a part of this movement now. Speak to others around you about matrescence, about your experience of motherhood. Let's bring it to light together. To find out more about Matrescence, go to amytailorcabaz.com forward slash Matrescence and receive your free ebook, The Matrescence Map, so you can understand it even deeper. Thank you for being a part of this. Until next week, Satna.